Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. What makes you smile, even in the doldrums of February? Our intern Joshua Phelps posed that question to some people around the city. Here's what they told him about what makes them happy. Spending time with friends and family, I'd say. Um, just uh, having fun playing games, usually. I like having a drink. What's your favorite drink? Cavassier or Hennessy, uh, brandy or cognac. I like writing lyrics and finding the right instrumental beats and performing to it, singing and dancing. Uh, St. Louis beer makes me happy. I really like, uh, I don't know, Maforehands and Schlafly. Schlafly especially has got some great beer. One thing that makes me happy is just uh, kind of a sense of community in St. Louis and the sense of, like, neighbors uh, coming together, doing activities. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs, so seeing kind of that neighborhood, like, connection is really, uh, really inspiring to me. Now, when it comes to happiness, you don't have to rely on anecdotal evidence like that. There's a lot of research out there about what works, and Tim Bono has dug into it deeply. Bono is a lecturer in uh, psychological and brain sciences at Washington University. He has a Ph.D. in psychology, and for nine years now, he has taught a course at Wash U called The Science of Happiness. It started as a seminar with just about a dozen students. It became wildly popular. He's now teaching the material in a lecture hall packed with more than three. 300 students. And Bono has written a book about his research. It's also a smash hit. Big U.S. sales, foreign publishers in three different countries. Last month, it got a new paperback edition with a new title. It's called Happiness 101, Simple Secrets to Smart Living and Well-Being. And here today to talk about it and what he's learned about happiness is Tim Bono. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So you first started teaching this course nine years ago. Did you have any idea at that point that you were onto something this big? Well, I, I knew that this is a topic that has a lot of appeal. When you look at other universities that offer courses in positive psychology, they typically become very popular. I initially taught it as a seminar course to maintain an opportunity for discussion and dialogue around these issues. But I quickly learned that the wait list was growing very large. And there was something ironic, it felt, to tell so many students, no, you can't take the happiness class. So I decided to expand it so that more students would have the opportunity to learn about what this field has to say. You wanted to make more people happy. As much as I can. So what would you attribute all this interest or maybe all this need um, for a happiness class to? Well, I think that in some ways it's a human universal for us to have curiosity about the, the pursuit of the good life and realistically what are the things that we can be doing to sort of curb those tendencies that might be leading us toward what some are deeming a mental health crisis and instead move the needle toward the other direction to put us on a path toward happiness, meaning, and well-being. So you have a really interesting chapter in the book where you're you're pretty critical of the self-esteem movement of the 80s and 90s, the idea that every kid gets a trophy. Um, I know from reading the book, you grew up in this milieu. I grew up in this milieu. I had to wonder how the desire for happiness plays into that. Like we were all told we were so special and real life often seems like such a come down from that. Do you think that's a big part of why we're all just questing for happiness rather than maybe trying to make the world a better place? I think that there could be something to that, Sarah, because a lot of us often approach happiness with a set of expectations about what is supposed to make us happy or what we think should make us happy that is perhaps misguided. The self-esteem movement of the 80s that you're referring to was developed by politicians and educators who got their hands on data sets showing that a kid with really high self-esteem was most likely to have really high grades 
and really good outcomes and all sorts of successful things that they could look forward to in their lives. But what we didn't have as much research on the time was what actually builds a sense of of our self-esteem and well-being. And it turns out that self-esteem is not about being happy all the time. Self-esteem is not about just feeling good all the time. Rather, a really important characteristic of self-esteem is knowing how to overcome adversity. And that's, I think, one of the biggest myths about the pursuit of happiness is that we're supposed to be happy all the time or that we've figured it out that if you do these three things or follow these five steps, you'll never have a bad day ever again. But a really important part of psychological health is understanding that distress, anxiety, sadness are simply part of the human experience. And so as important as it is to, pr- to pursue happiness, it's also important to have strategies that allow us to cope with the inevitable stressors that are simply part of life. Some of these setbacks, um, you write about this, just the importance of being able to handle, handle failure, comes down to having this growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Uh, what are these things and why do they matter? Well, it, yeah, it, it turns out that, that the mindset that we take as we approach our lives really plays a strong um, com- contributor to our overall sense of well-being. A fixed mindset is an individual who sort of has a rigid approach to their goings-on in life, and they they expect things to, to sort of fall into a certain pattern. They think that either I'm intelligent or I'm not intelligent. Either I'm happy or I'm not going to be happy. Whereas a growth mindset acknowledges that those things most commonly fall on a continuum. Um, and that with hard work, with intentional behaviors and decisions, we can increase things like our talent in certain areas, or our intellectual abilities, or even our happiness. And that's another of the biggest myths, I think, that people expect either I'm going to be happy or I'm going to be unhappy. But it turns out it's better to think about those as residing on a continuum and asking ourselves, how can I be happier instead of how can I be happy? And part of what I loved about this book um, is it's just so practical, like the advice in this book. And I I know it comes from all these studies and, and from science, but when you drill it down, it seems kind of simple, you know, that for most of us, it's it's not about years of therapy. In many cases, you're saying it's as simple as getting enough sleep and getting exercise. Would you say that's an oversimplification? Or for many people, is that really what they need? I think that for many people, it's a good place to start because really at the foundation of our physical health is well, I should say at the foundation of our psychological health is our physical health. And some of the very simple ways that we can take care of our bodies that ultimately improve our minds and our mental functioning and how we feel about ourselves has to do with things like how much physical activity we're incorporating into our lives, as well as getting a good night's sleep on a regular basis. A lot of people, including my students, will say, oh, I'm too busy to get a good night's sleep on a regular basis. I've got too much work to do. And that was the conventional wisdom for a long time. We thought it was a waste of time when you could be using that time for something else. But what neuro science has been showing us is that when we are sleeping, our brains are incredibly active. They're doing all sorts of really important work to strengthen the neural circuits that play out in mental acuity and emotion regulation. So getting a good night's sleep is really what ensures that our waking hours are putting us in a position to feel as good as we can and to work toward our goals with as much efficiency as we can. And in addition to the sleep, um, you really stress uh, the importance of exercise. There was a great study you had in there that found that exercise is actually better than Zoloft for a big group of people. How is that even possible? Yeah, it's it's one of those l- landmark studies that was done about 20 years ago. And it was, it, it, had, it was sort of following 
following up with some other research that had found a relationship between exercise and psychological well-being. But this study specifically enrolled individuals who were clinically depressed, and one group of them, they had take Zoloft, which at the time was a well-documented SSRI, a pharmaceutical intervention for curing depression. Another group of them, um, they simply had them exercise. So for three days a Three days a week, they had them work with a personal trainer to get 30 minutes of cardiovascular activity. What they found is that within four months of being on those routines, um, there was an equal rate of recovery, that the people who had just been exercising, not meeting with a therapist, not taking any drugs, they were just as likely to recover as those who had been taking that, that drug intervention. But what was truly a shock to the scientific community is that they kept tabs on those individuals for another six months. And at the 10-month follow-up, uh, they found that those who had been exercising were actually even more likely to have been recovered. They were less likely to relapse. And as they dug more deeply into the data, what they found is that those individuals who had been exercising were showing an increase in what psychologists call self-efficacy, which is essentially the confidence we have that we are the masters of our own domain and that we are capable of taking care of ourselves on our own because there's an internal locus of control. When you exercise, that's something that you've done yourself versus um, if you're using a psychiatric medication, well, you there's an external locus of control. You had to meet with a physician. There's another person who has to be involved there, which is with exercise. You're doing it all on your own, and you get a psychological boost from the hard work that was required to carry out that workout. It's certainly not to say that we should do away with psychiatric medications. Mm -hmm. There are some people for whom that is the most appropriate intervention, but it is to say that for people who are physically able to do so, if you're having a, a day where you're feeling down or you think you might be suffering from depression, finding opportunities to incorporate physical activity into your day-to-day -day life is a really good way um, to see if that might be the ticket to increase your well-being. A lot of our research shows that for a lot of people, it really is. You also had a formula in this book that I thought was just so important. I wish I could just get this in the hands of everybody. It's sort of a simple equation for happiness. You say happiness equals what we have divided by what we want. Walk me through that. Sure. It's a very simple way of conceptualizing the way that psychologists have come to understand what truly contributes to our overall happiness. It's that ratio of what do we currently have and importantly, what do we expect to have? So that means that there are two ways to increase our happiness. One way is to increase how much we have, which is what a lot of people chase. They want a higher paying job. They want a fancier car. They want to live in a nicer home, go on fancier vacations. That will increase the numerator of that, of that formula. But what we've come to understand is that not surprisingly, as the amount of money we have and the resources we have increase, so too do our expectations. And that's what's at the, at the denominator of the formula. And very often our expectations for what we should have or how comfortable life should be, that is often increasing at a rate that is faster than the numerator of what we actually do have. So really, if we look at that formula, the more effective way, instead of increasing what we have or getting a nicer car or having more money, um, there are two ways that we can use that formula to our advantage. One is to keep our expectations realistic. Um, and that a very simple way to do that is to minimize opportunities for social comparison. And especially <laughs> in the days of social media, you, you log on to Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat and constantly you're inundated with these messages about how much better everybody else's life is. And that's only inflating that numerator. It makes us want even more. Um, but instead, if we can shift the amount of attention that we're giving to what we want, 
that's what we wish we had, and instead put that on the numerator, which is very simply through the practice of gratitude. Study after study is showing that gratitude is one of the simplest yet most robust strategies we can incorporate to increase our happiness in the long term. Because gratitude is not about actually getting more stuff or having more things. It's about drawing attention to those good things in our lives that we may simply have lost sight of. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who once said, comparison is the thief of joy. And there's quite a lot of research showing that social comparison is no good recipe for happiness. But gratitude goes a long way toward increasing our sense of well-being. It's interesting. I think overall, one of my big takeaways from this book is that spending too much time looking at our phones is just terrible because we get the the increase in comparisons. And then we also have the increase in being sedentary. You're really down on both of those things. Yes. Yeah. There are a lot of side effects with technology. And to be clear, I am in no way suggesting that we should get rid of technology or get rid of social media. But I do think it's important for us to bring awareness to the potential adverse consequences overuse of that technology can have and simply bring attention to how much time we're spending on it and and see if there are ways that we can uh, perhaps spend a little bit less time on that and more time interacting with people one-on-one in person or put our phone downs and get more exercise. Because um, if, if we are making sacrifices to personal connections with other people and to opportunities to be a bit more active in our day-to-day lives, um, that can contribute to some of that anxiety and depression that seems to be increasing. Well, Tim Bono of Washington University, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. And Tim's book is Happiness 101. It's now out in paperback, so you have no excuse not to uh, take these hacks and uh, find happiness your yourself. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.